You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Felicia, and this episode features Courtney Richardson. Courtney is an Ad Color nominated and two-time Shorty Award winning creative visionary and culture expert. She currently leads creative strategy at Paper Magazine and is also the founder of Do It For The Brand, a social collective whose mission is to ensure the cultural currency of black and brown female voices across creative industries is uplifted, empowered, and activated. California native, Courtney figured out early that she wanted to be a voice for the voiceless. And after graduating from Howard University with a master's degree in mass communication and media studies, she made her way to New York City to launch her career doing just that. Over the last decade, Courtney has worked with a long list of top personalities and brands, including Nike, HBO, Hulu, Lena Waithe, Taraji P. Henson, and Laverne Cox. And she's also seen this industry from a number of different vantage points, including as an entrepreneur, when she cashed in her 401k to launch her own brand. But at every stage, one thing has remained constant. Courtney has used her original ideas and disruptive thinking to create a platform for Black culture. So without further ado, here's her story. Please enjoy. Courtney, welcome to the December 26er podcast. How are you? I'm great, Alicia. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for being here. I can already tell by your fly background and the shirt that you have on. This is about to be a lively conversation. (laughs) Yes, yes. Have to represent. (laughs) Absolutely. So let's not bury the lead. You are an AKA repping for Miss Madam Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Uh, We are all excited about the historic moment that we are living in that part of it. We won't talk about the other historic moments that we're experiencing. Um, So we know the the, the AKA is about to show out for the next four years, at least. Yes, we are showing up and we are showing out. No, No apologies. Absolutely. So let's get into it. Who is Courtney Richardson? Courtney Richardson is her ancestors' wildest dreams. Courtney Richardson is a voice for the voiceless. Um, Courtney Richardson is a proud Black woman um, by day. You know, I lead creative strategy at Paper Magazine, but that doesn't necessarily define me. Um, Courtney is put on this earth uh, to push the culture forward. Um, And I'm rooting for Black people all day, every day. Rooting for everybody Black. I'm feeling it. So, you know, I... Uh, we we asked that question. I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the air, um, but we asked that question because we find that depending on what people say, it often reflects what they value the most and what they're most comfortable talking about. So it's a way to kind of get the uh, the momentum going in the interview um, and get into a subject that they're going to feel confident in discussing. And I'm always fascinated, you know, by how many people speak to before they speak to career, they speak to familial connection. Um, things like you mentioned, the elders, the ancestors, et cetera, before they move into like, oh, this is what I just so happen to do. And you took it a step further by saying, this doesn't define me, this this career mm-hmm. that I have. And I think that's important, right? Because so much of, I think, our achieving as as Black folks and all the boxes that we check and the things that we've accomplished, often it is is because we are trying to find a worthiness that we may not inherently have. Right. So we start to in, we start to invest in all these things, education, all the degrees. No, I work here. Um, and we all know 
that job is great, but it can be stripped away from you, right? And so finding mm-hmm. that self-worth and finding that purpose outside of a title at an organization is really important. So you mentioned being your ancestors' wildest dreams and a voice to the voiceless. Before we even get into the career, um, that is purpose, right? When you make a statement like that, that means you're standing in your purpose. So when did you first realize that, you know what, this is what I've been called on this, uh, put on this earth to do and what I'm called to do. And that is give voice where there may may not be an opportunity to have one normally. Yeah, I think that's an awesome question. And, you know, to be quite frank, um, not allowing a title to define me, I haven't always been that way, right? I too was sort of in that fast lane of, you know, I have two degrees, I have a master's in mass communication, and I did this and I did that. Um, And it really wasn't until um, maybe my mid-20s, I realized like all of those titles, all of the accolades, your resume, you know, all those things um, can go away overnight you know, and so you really kind of need to have a solid foundation, really knowing who you are and what your purpose is in life. And clearly, you know, continue to grow with that um, and evolve with that. Um, And for me, I think I really kind of started to really understand my purpose um, at the age of eight years old, um, when I was called the N-word by a classmate. And um, at first, I was like, really shocked. And I, I didn't know how to sort of digest that. I mean, how can you digest that, especially as a a young child, um, but actually like standing up and in, in speaking out about it and, you know, speaking to the teacher about it and telling, you know, coming home from school and kind of being vulnerable and expressing to, you know, my mom, because I grew up in a single parent household, like how that made me feel and, and why is the world so unfair to us, you know, and things like that. So I really kind of realized like, wow, there's so much potential and beauty in Blackness, but people don't see that. They see it as, um, a threat for many. They see it as um, something that doesn't have value or shouldn't be um, upheld or uplifted. So I think having sort of that traumatic experience as a child, rather than sort of retreat and uh, not want to sort of lean into my Blackness, I sort of took that as me really embracing it, actually. And, and knowing, like, I'm not going to allow some eight-year-old kid, my peer, you know what I'm saying, take my identity away or make me feel less than. And, you know, I, I love that you brought this up because I think for a while, many of us have had these experiences and we talk about them amongst ourselves, but it's been sort of taboo, right, to speak truth to power and say, no, no, like visceral um, outbursts or derogatory language or being called a racial slur. Most of us have stories like that. That's these are not isolated incidents, and I think sometimes you know it 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 is normalized in the sense that we we've, we've been told or maybe we've been socialized in a way where we think, oh no, I shouldn't talk about this. Um, but I think people need to understand that, like, yeah, we're not living in a time of white hoods anymore. But if an eight year old comes cool and calls you the n word, it's because they're hearing it at home, and the conversations are happening in a way. Um, where they're being influenced. And now these people that were eight calling you the N-word grow up to be in the same boardrooms that we are in right now. And I think people are realizing that as these arrests come out um, from this coup, attempted coup that happened last week. But it's interesting that you you took that experience at such a young age and said, no, no, I'm not going to retreat. I'm going to stand in my Blackness. Where did that come from? Did your mom instill that in you? Uh, was she encouraging you to do that? Because at, to have that knowing at that age, that's not common. 
no, no. And I, and I totally understand that. And it doesn't mean that, you know, if you are someone else's eight years old, however they responded, react to that, like that's their truth. That's, you know, their story. Um, but I think for me, you know, sort of maybe even being a first generation American and kind of growing up in a household, an immigrant household, um, and kind of having sort of that African ancestry and kind of knowing that uh, growing up, whether it was, you know, subconsciously even, um, I think that's really where it came from. Like growing up in a household where, you know, my, my parents are from Africa and there's sort of that cultural aspect and there's pride in that too. And you may not recognize it, recognize it or notice it clearly, you know, as a kid, but I think within that moment, sort of when the match was struck, you know, and I had to respond and react, I was able to kind of really realize the value in that, the value in growing up in, you know, not only a Black household, but, you know, an African household. Um, So I think, honestly, that's how it came about from my household, from my culture. And do you think that's something, um, that celebration of Blackness is something that you see more in first generation, right, situations when you're you're growing up with parents who aren't necessarily from here? Uh, Is that something that really is sort of unique to to your experience, you think, as um, a first generation American? Oh, yes, most definitely. And I actually talk a lot about this with my girlfriends and with my peers and my colleagues who are also first generation American, like what our experience is compared to, let's say, um, our peers, colleagues, friends, even family members who aren't first generation American, like maybe their family is from like the South or from the East Coast, wherever it may be. Um, And there is there are commonalities, you know, whether, you know, you're from Nigeria or for, from West Africa, East Africa, even the Caribbean, um, South America, some countries, um, there's sort of this within your household, there's sort of this innate uh, pride. And, you know, a lot of times there's pressure too from your parents um, where you're expected to be, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, you know, someone who is in a hard skill set, in a hard career. For me, I was sort of the black sheep. <laughs> um, sort of being a multi-hyphenate creative, um, I kind of got to kind of do my own thing while my other siblings were kind of filling in those, those roles of being the doctors and the lawyers. Um, but yeah, I think there is sort of within first-generation American households, there is sort of this blanketed expectation of, of pride and, and self-work. That's great. Yeah, you, you you beat me to it talking about the expectations growing up in, in that uh, kind of household, because we all know it's like doctor, engineer, lawyer, you know, mm-hmm. something. So when did you come to the realization that, you know what, I'm more of a creative than a than a math science person? Yeah. So to be honest, like my mom, when I was a kid, she would, you know, when I was growing up, she'd always be like, oh, she's going to be a doctor one day. You know, my grandfather was a a well-respected doctor. Um, And so I don't know where the expectation was for me to be a doctor. I didn't have, you know, any particular interest in the sciences per se, in medicine. It just was kind of like told to me. But um, I think my creativity really was when I started dancing, you know, starting at the age of two. I really, really kind of understood and loved the arts. It was a great way for me to express myself. Um, And then also my uncle um, is a well-known music director, music video director. And so I would spend summers in New York with him um, on set, on location, seeing him, you know, work with No Limit Records or work with Wu-Tang Clan, for instance. And that was just so like, crazy and interesting and just so bomb to experience. Um, And I was like, wow, you can really tell stories, you know what I'm saying, in a very creative way. I don't have to be the doctor that my mom is 
saying to everyone that I had said I'm going to be because I'm I knew since I was a kid that you know I was very right brained that I was very creative that I love the arts um and so those two things being a dancer and sort of uh, being able to experience, you know, um, my uncle's uh, role and position within music, within hip hop, uh, within media, really, um, really kind of reassured me that 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 this is what I was going to do. And I think also knowing my self worth and like loving my people so much, I truly know that I was put on this earth to do that. You know what I'm saying? Whether it's even at paper, you know, where my ultimate goal is really to to represent for all of us you know what i'm saying like making sure that black and brown people are on the are on the cover that we are sharing stories of black and brown businesses like any position i've had i've really have tried to um sort of put that forward put that mission forward and i unapologetically do it you know i work in spaces with there are not a lot of people who look like me delisha like i'm sure you know this too being a lawyer um, so it's really about honestly being unafraid and like doing it on behalf of your people, not just, you know, for myself. And I have a lot of thoughts and questions about the work that you do in uh, that specific topic. But before we get there, so what did the first iteration of your career dreams look like? What did you want to be growing up? Wow. So I think it evolved in so many different ways. Um, And, you know, being a creative, and I'm sure many of your listeners can relate, even just being an entrepreneur, like it always changes. It always, you know what I'm saying, is evolving and and switching. You know, one day you may feel this, the next day you, you know, want to be this. Um, So there were a plethora of different things that as a kid, as an adolescent growing up, that I wanted to be, you know, um, I wanted to be a journalist at one point. I love writing. I love expressing myself. And thankfully, you know, at paper, um, I'm able to do that in my role. Um, but with that being said, I just, I just honestly wanted to be in entertainment. I wanted to be in media. Right. And I think, um, getting a master's in mass communication and media, I think even at Howard really reassured me that like, okay, like I can do this. No matter, you know what I'm saying, if I'm working for an all black company or an all white company, that I will make a space and a lane for myself. So I literally (laughs) have been on the brand side of things and I've been on the client side of things. I've been on the agency side of things. Um, So it's always constantly evolved. But I think the big picture for me, the end goal, Delisha, is to be like a chief creative officer somewhere where I'm able to um, put together stories and share stories of not just Black people, but Black women and Black girls. Like that is ultimately like my dream. So you talked about getting a master's degree from Howard, but what was your academic and professional journey if you took time off before then? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for undergrad, um, I attended Colgate and I got um, my undergrad in education in theater. Um, And that experience was quite interesting because it was nothing but white folk. (laughs) But I was very active on campus um, and very people saw me as she's the girl to get things done, but she's also the girl not to mess with. So, you know, whether it was being president of, you know, um, Black student organizations and things like that, like, I was sort of known as that girl. Um, So I I went to undergrad and then I went straight to grad school. And I think I applied to grad school, honestly, because I did not know what was next for me. Like, I kind of didn't know, like, well, what what are the instructions? Like, what's the blueprint? You know what I'm saying? Like, once you get a degree, 
do you go into the real world and do you start a job? Like I kind of didn't know like what to do from there. And then also I kind of wanted to also really sort of hone my um, skills in media, in mass communication. Um, And it probably was like one of the best decisions I ever made um, attending Howard clearly. Um, but also being able to teach there, you know, um, and really sort of bring really interesting topics uh, to the classroom, to my curriculum, you know, whether we were talking about like um, sexism in the hip hop and things like that uh, was very cool, very uh, inspirational for me um, as a graduate student. Uh, And then I moved to New York City and and had my first real job, uh, which was in television. Um, And that was, was very interesting. So, okay. I'm glad I could see by your face and using the word interesting. Like this is probably something we should talk about because, you know, people who listen to this show regularly know that like my legal career and days gone by, it was in the entertainment space. Um, and people think working in television and film and music is really sexy and it's great and you have all the access. Um, but most people you talk to who have worked in those spaces <laughs> have different opinions, right, about it. Um, so de- define what you mean or describe what you mean when you say it was interesting. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I think for me, it was interesting because I was young, right? And so a lot of my teammates, coworkers, um, superiors were a bit older than I was. And perhaps they weren't used to someone being so young, um, being so gung-ho. Uh, to present certain things, to pitch certain ideas, to bring certain ideas to the table. Um, so there were times where I was told to um, sort of pump the brake, take a take a step back, uh, not really be as ambitious as I was. Um, and who knows, that could have been them feeling insecure within themselves, um, because within those type of industries, you find a lot of people who work um, for companies for very for years, you know, like they've been there ten plus years, and so they get comfortable. They're used to the way things are, and so having this new person come in to kind of shake the table in my K Michelle voice, um, I think, um, was sort of disturbing for them. You know what I'm saying? A surprise, um, shocking. And a majority of them were, you know, white colleagues. Um, so also me being a woman, being a double minority, a woman and a black woman, I'm sure uh, wasn't fun <laughs> for them to see someone like myself coming in um, and, and being so bold um, and fearless. Um, so I think it was an age thing. I think it was uh, possibly a race thing. Um, so that's why it was interesting because you would get a lot of pushback um, and not necessarily know why you were getting pushback. So, you know, and in, in, I think in many fields, not just creative and, and entertainment, someone's always talking about, we need young, fresh talent. We need new ideas, right? Um, but many people have had your experience of going in and, and being really ambitious and energized and bringing a fresh perspective to the table only to be met with, quote, the status, status quo. In the years since you were in that role, do you think the climate has changed at all and there's more of an openness to younger talent coming in and wanting to shake the table? Most definitely. So that was like, I don't want to age myself, but that was like 10 years ago. <laughs> so within that, those 10 years, a decade, um, I think things have changed. And the reason why I think that's changed is because entrepreneurship and creativity has been more respected and more um, embraced, you know, especially even during 2020, during the uh, COVID pandemic, 
a lot of people were sort of really tapping into sort of their creative spirits, um, to their entrepreneur spirits as well. And so people are kind of like um, being more accustomed to that sort of um, personality type, if you will, to people who are young. A lot of millennials, a lot of Gen Z, um, our entrepreneurs are sort of taking the risk of, you know, starting their own businesses or having multiple streams of uh, income. So I definitely think there has been a shift. Um, There's still a lot of work that needs to be done, but I definitely think 10 years ago it was vastly different than it is now. So your experience at that time, meeting that resistance, Um, did it push you to say, I got to find something else. I need to figure out how to break through here. People react in different ways to to that kind of environment. So what did it push you to do? Yeah. So after, you know, working in television, um, for over a year, I moved on to working on the agency side. So having, you know, plethora of different clients within lifestyle, hospitality, and, you know, doing advertising and marketing campaigns. Um, for different people. And I still felt that I was still experiencing some of the things I was experiencing at my first role, my first job, which was sort of that age thing, that race thing, you know, the the gender thing and the pushback. But there, I also was seeing um, a lack of care for Black um, audiences. So all like these multi-million dollar budgets were, you know, going towards certain audiences and Black and Brown people, audiences weren't even being um, paid attention to, right? So like, for instance, you know, Black people, we travel a lot. We actually do. And, and, and people don't really understand that. But, you know, we would have a hospitality client, for instance, and they would put all of their marketing dollars towards a different demographic rather than really focusing on, you know, let's say young professionals who are, you know, middle class or above who actually spend the money to go on trips. Um, and that really bothered me. I didn't understand why, um you know, that audience, our people were being sort of neglected neglected and ignored, you know? And um, with that, I actually also had people coming to me asking for assistance on their marketing, on their creativity, on their brands. And so I was like, you know what? Something has to be done. Something ha- I have to like really kind of start my own agency. And that's when I sort of stepped out on faith and started my own agency where I represented um, different beauty and lifestyle clients, which... One was scary because I lived in New York City and we all know the rent is too damn high um, here. But I think me seeing uh, the neglect from um, a marketing perspective and then also kind of having this sort of entrepreneurial itch, I had to do it because if I didn't, I would have regrets. You know, I would always wonder why looking back like, oh, if I hadn't started my own business, you know, what, what would the experience have been like? So thankfully, I did that. And, you know, it was very successful for me. Um, And for me, it was really about representing for um, the black and brown uh, business owners um, and celebrity clientele that I had the chance to represent, like sharing their stories. Like there's no reason why, you know, this beauty, uh, this beauty owner, beauty business owner uh, can't be in vogue when her, you know, counterpart who may be white has been in vogue three times. You know what I'm saying? So being able to you know, get my clients awards, get them, you know, um, amazing PR, amazing uh, press hits was definitely an ultimate. Like, I was so thankful that I got to experience that and sort of do that on their behalf. So if I hadn't stepped out on faith, if I hadn't opened my eyes and looked around and said, hey, like, 
what's going on at this agency. They're, they're not putting their marketing dollars to black and brown people. Um, and if I had just was like, oh, I just want to, you know, appease my boss. I'm here just to do my nine to five, check the boxes and go home. Um, I feel like I would have never been able to experience that. So I'm very thankful that I was aware and that I was able to. So what I find fascinating about this is because a lot of people who were in your shoes in a, in a job that's frankly coveted for a lot of people um, and seeing the gap, right? Seeing the void that needs to be filled. They would commiserate with their homegirls about it. You know, they would try to make strides and moving the needle forward in terms of getting clients to pay attention to this, this audience of consumers who are spending dollars, real dollars, right? Mm-hmm. But not a lot of people would say, I see the challenges in this business and now I'm going to leave my paycheck and go kill what I, you know, eat and, and try to make it work knowing that the, the demographic that I would like to serve as an entrepreneur, entrepreneur is not necessarily the first uh, demographic that now the people I'm going to have to target for, for to spend money that they're looking at. So when you say like step out on faith, right? Um, from a, from a tactical perspective, what did that look like for you? Like, did you have the savings to be like, if I don't bring in a dime, right? For six months, I'm good. What did that look like? So, yeah, um, I was speaking to someone earlier and I was like, you know, usually you hear people's stories and they give you the A and the Z, but they never give you the rest of the alphabet in between. Um, so for me, you know, I actually never shared this with anyone. So this is an exclusive. Um, I actually cashed in my 401k. Really? Yes. Yes, I did. And, and to be very honest with you, I was going ahead, putting my business plan together and kind of figuring out like what this was going to look like. And I actually, one, had no idea that I had the check for my 401k, right? For me to cash. And I actually found it cleaning up my apartment, which says a lot about (laughs) my organizational skills at the time. Um, But I came across it and I was like, you know what though? This might be a sign. Like, you know, like we all, you know, especially when we were kids, our parents at least were always like, oh, you know, you want to grow up and you want to get your pension or you want to, you know what I'm saying, work um, however many amount of years to get to a certain point to, you know, retire. Um, and I saw it and I didn't think of that. I was like, this is a sign from from up above saying, use this to start your business. <laughs> and so that's what I did, um, you know, and it was it was a, a, a very handsome uh, 401k um, that I was able to cash out uh, because clearly I had been in corporate America for quite some time. So it was, you know, growing and building. I mean, just sitting there really collecting dust. Um, so I cashed it out and I started my business. So that's really how it started. Question though, did you tell your mom that you cashed out your 401k? No, she's going to hear it for the first time when she listens to this episode. So <laughs> I mean, you're on the other side of it now. So it's fine. Hopefully she realizes it was, it was a good investment. I, I would hope. <laughs> so. You start this business that you were able to be successful in, but let's talk about the mechanics of pitching black and brown led businesses to mainstream brands. How much pushback Mm -hmm. did you receive in the beginning in trying to do that? Um, A lot. I mean, that's just, unfortunately, the, the way it is, that's just sort of the territory. Like people hear black business and they think cheap. You know what I'm saying? They think um, products aren't great. You know what I'm saying? They think possibly even uneducated to some degree. Um, and I think that might come from the ignorance of, let's say, social media. You know, like, for instance, if you go on Instagram, you see you can come across a lot of flat tubby tees, waist trainers, you know what I'm saying? Sort of the same old same. 
But if you really take a moment and stop and like do your due diligence and do your research, you will find that Black entrepreneur uh, women in particular are the fastest growing group in uh, the U.S. You know, they're the most educated. They're the most um, ambitious, really. But yet they don't get the funding. They don't get, you know, the press and exposure that they deserve. And I think for me, um, being a Black woman, like I clearly can relate to that, you know, whether I've owned a business or not. There's that um, commonality of sort of being on the other side and, and, and kind of being on the side and not being center stage, right? So um, it was not easy, but I did not let up. I was very determined. Um, and I think like, you know, you can, you can keep going, you can keep pitching and, you know, you'll get nine no's, but the 10th one could be a yes, right? So if you have that mentality with whatever you're doing, you know, I think this applies to anyone, whatever industry you're in, that something has to give something will come of it. Um, so never letting go, being determined. And don't get me wrong, like it's not easy. You know what I'm saying? You're going to need a moment to cry and, and ask yourself why. And, you know, for me, it was like, I was so passionate about my clients. So because I understood their stories, you know, and my goal was, wasn't about me. It was about them. And for the rest of the world to know, you know, the amazing brands, black and black owned brands that are out there. Um, so I just kept going. And once you start, once you get your first, when people see that you know what i'm saying and then they sort of gravitate towards that you know what you know like with the haters out there like once you you know what i'm saying um get an get an award or something like that they want to you know be in the videos you know what i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> the way she ignites it yeah yeah they want to be all up in the videos um, dancing. But, yeah dancing you know um so um I just kept, I just kept going and going and going. And then like, you know, major publications were noticing like, Hey, who's this publicist? Who's this marketer? Who's this brand champion really out there sort of pushing the word um, and being like the hype man for these, these cool, you know, uh, celebrity. Some of them were, you know, a part of glam squads and they worked with different celebrities. Some of them, you know, owned actual brands. Um, they were like, who is this, you know, speaking on behalf of, of these uh, black and brown people. And it was me. So I was able to sort of, in a weird way, also build my reputation um, off of that as well. Yeah. And, you know, you brought up something that we've talked about on this show before. Uh, this idea that black women are the fastest growing segment of entrepreneurs, but we make up for the smallest uh, population when you're talking about access to capital, particularly VC funding. And what I find mm -hmm. so ironic about that is the things that we build without the backing, right? Which just speaks to our diligence, our ingenuity and everything else. But somehow you look at these studies and these white papers on VC funds and private equity and all of that, how they view Black founders. And, you know, there's just an assumption that we are deficient, even though the numbers say otherwise. In the last year, uh, or almost a year, there's been a huge focus on DNI, right? Just the political unrest, mm -hmm. all the 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 racial protests or race-driven protests that have come to a head. Every company now, every organization is is talking about how to increase their focus on diversity and show that like we want to be on the winning side. Do you think that that has or will extend though to support for black and brown entrepreneurs, particularly female entrepreneurs? Do you think we're headed to a place where we will have access to more capital and the like? I would hope so. Um, I really, really do. Um, I'm a very optimistic person, um, but I've seen, you know what I'm saying, the lip service. 
if you will, from major companies and brands and, and you know, uh, maybe white founders, if you will, who say they mean well, but do they really? Like, I'm all about, especially when it comes to uh, Black people and Black women, like, you're going to talk that talk or you're going to walk the walk. So um, we can talk till our faces turn blue, but where's my check? Like, where does the money reside? Like, I feel like... Um, Due to the unrest, especially of 2020, I felt that um, companies, some companies sort of woke up and started different programs, different mentorship um, arms within their companies, particularly for black and brown business owners, for black and brown creatives, for black and brown writers, you know, and everyone in between, which was great. I just don't want it to be a trend. I just don't want this to be some sort of bandwagon wokeness where everyone is jumping um, on the bandwagon, basically, and, you know, putting up their black squares on social media and, you know what I'm saying, doing all these things. But when, you know, the hype dies down, where are they at? You know what I'm saying? So that that's why I'm a little um, hesitant to, to, to be like, yes, 100% a year from now, you know what I'm saying? that percentage of uh, Black female entrepreneurs, as far as VC capital, um, is concerned, it's going to go up. It's just that I'm very um, critical. I have my eye on a lot of people um, and kind of watching. But I also feel like we don't necessarily need to rely on um, these big businesses or, or majority founders either. I really feel like um, as a people, we could definitely like network across not up, because a lot of us think we have to go to the CEO of X business to ask for money or to get something done when, in fact, if you look to your left, you look to your right, you know what I'm saying? The resources are right there. So I feel like it's a bit twofold. Like, yes, you know, we can go out there and we can look for these programs and look for these VC um, opportunities, but then also like, we need to just like we encourage each other to have multiple streams of income. We need to have multiple streams of strategy mm. as far as our business is concerned, as far as our uh, brand awareness is concerned. You know what I'm saying? So um, it's a very complex, <laughs> as you can tell, it's not black and white. It's very gray. So I'm keeping mm. my eye out and, and I hope and pray that it, that it does. Um, it does do us well in the end. Well, that was a whole word, multiple streams of income and multiple streams of strategy. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think that is where sometimes we can get a bit lost, right? When, when, you're, when you're into something and you're passionate about it and you know that you're called to it, sometimes we pigeonhole ourselves in a certain way to get to our desired destination. And we're investing all of our time, money, and energy into this one strategic track. And then when it doesn't work, it's like I gave my all and I have nothing to show for it. Uh, and mm-hmm. it takes to be successful and, and build a brand or anything, it takes an ability to pivot and to pivot quickly, right? When, when things are not working in one lane, it's like, all right, let's, let's shift our focus, um, which I think is a good segue with, with your story because you took this leap of faith. You found success by leveraging your 401k and built this business. But also at some point you made the decision to actually go back to working with a, a company, correct? So yes, what drove you to that point? So let's see, what drove me to that point? I definitely feel like uh, Do It For The Brand, which is my company, um, sort of started to become a brand of its own, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, it sort of uh, grew out of um, representing clients and became more of sort of a social collective, if you will, um, sort of being a social voice for Black creatives, um, whether that was through social media, events, merch, et cetera. And that was actually something that I was planning on 
launching at the top of 2020. Um, but as you know, 2020 was ham, a hot ass mm-hmm. mess. Um, and so I had to pivot. <laughs> I had to pivot. And it's quite interesting how I pivoted. I pivoted actually in the wake of all of the unrest that was happening. So during the George Floyd um, murder um, and Black Lives Matter 2.0, because again, I don't know why people are waking up and being like, oh my gosh, Black Lives Matter. I didn't know this was a thing. And this has been going on at least 2012. You know what I'm saying? So I call it Black Lives Matter 2.0. And through all of that, um, I kind of had to pivot, right? Not only sort of being a spokesperson, um, if you will, for um, my people, for Black and Brown Millennials and Black and Brown Gen Z, um, but also like what Do It For The Brain is going to look like in 2021 when we're back uh, to quote unquote normal. Um, Hopefully that'll be soon. But um, I've had to kind of really embrace um, the dynamic of what it means to pivot. And um, I didn't force things, you know what I'm saying? Like when you're creative, when you're very passionate, when you're an entrepreneur, um, like you said, you sometimes get in your own way because you're so passionate. You want to see instant success. You want to see results immediately. Um, But for 2020, like I took a a moment and I stepped back, you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, do it for the brand now um, is a brand of its own. Maybe this is my time to figure out like what that means and what it represents. Um, and within my own work now being back in corporate America, having a nine to five, I now know my purpose even more. Right. And so like, not just sort of putting that purpose within the box of my company, do it for the brand, but also extending it, giving it more legs, you know what I'm saying? Through not only my own company, but through my nine to five, you know what I'm saying? So that way I'm able to spread the message even more, you know what I'm saying? Push my purpose even more. Um, so being at paper, you know, even what came out of 2020 out of the unrest was, um, this exclusive editorial series that I lead called Booked and Busy. And Booked and Busy is, um, a column on papermag.com where I feature and really have deep discussions with, with black owned businesses, um, and black, uh, black entrepreneurs. So it has been a wild success. Um, and really that was out of, um, just the craziness of 2020. And I felt like, wow, like people aren't really seeing us, you know? And so I wanted to give a voice. I wanted to give a platform um, to, to black and brown, but really black owners. Um, And it's something that I'm really proud of. And again, that was coming out of me sort of pivoting, um, but then also me sort of spreading my mission outside of do it for the brand with whatever it is that I do, whatever I attach myself to, I try to push that forward as well. So it's easy to look back, right, of, of what has happened, what happened in 2020, what's happening in 2021, and the work that you're doing and thriving at Paper Magazine and say, wow, that was the right decision. But sometimes when it's time to make it, it could be a bit difficult, particularly because many people draw this line in the sand, like either you're an entrepreneur, you're a hustler, or you work for the man, right? There's like, people don't always have respect for, for those of us who may be an employee somewhere on a W-2, but have these whole businesses as well. Um, and often I think it comes from a place of ego, quite frankly, but Mm. often when people have to make the decision to go in-house to a corporation, then they feel like, man, did I fail at entrepreneurship or, you know, this is not what I signed up for anymore. I was running my own thing. Did you have Mm. any of those negative feelings about making the pivot back to corporate? 
I did in the beginning. Yes. I kind of also sort of had sort of imposter syndrome as well, because um, being a, you know, owner of your own business and having a small team, you know what I'm saying? You're sort of used to running things. And then now you're, you know, placed back into a whole different work dynamic that you're sort of more or less a cog in the machine, <laughs> not to sound pessimistic, but you might be a number, you may be a, be a cog, you have a superior, et cetera. So it's a different hierarchy. Um, so for me, it took a little bit of adjusting, you know, like even schedules, you know what I'm saying? Because like when you're an entrepreneur, not that you always set your own schedule, but it's a different workflow, right? But when you're back in the nine to five world, when you're back in the corporate world, it's different, you know? Um, so at first it took a little bit of time for me to adjust. But to be honest, like, I just told myself, like, I'm going to bring my whole self to the table. I'm going to just be me and, you know, either they'll take it or not. And that's that. Like, I'm not changing for anyone. (laughs) Um, And so I clearly did that. And honestly, like, real talk, like, it has been, like, so freeing, so liberating, Um, very different from, let's say, 10 years ago with Courtney, who just stepped into um, the real world. Where, yeah, I was, you know, bold and, and young and, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed. Um, but being told, no, you can't do this, wondering why, you know what I'm saying? But now, as 10 years later, like, I'm going to keep growing and I'm going to push things forward. Like, that's just who I am. Like, you either love it or you hate it, you know what I'm saying? And so, me being authentically myself um, just makes the job um, easier for me at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So you lead creative strategy at Paper Magazine. I, I want to make sure that that is made clear. This is not you just doing this one column. Uh, so what mm-hmm. other things encompass this role beyond just ushering in this booked and busy uh, feature as well? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because clearly that's just like not in my job description, right? Like that is something that I spearheaded. Um, again, like being unafraid, right? Um, so my day to day basically is to uh, lead and develop uh, disruptive thinking and innovative ideas for um, different uh, segments of brands and personalities. So that's fashion, beauty, um, entertainment, sports. So people will come to paper and they sort of want that paper lens. Um, Paper magazine has been around for 35 years now, over 35 years. And it's definitely known as sort of representing the counterculture generation. So people, if they want that lens, um, my job is to make it happen. Right. So that could be um, working with Nike and Nike wanting to put together a campaign for, let's say, a sneaker release and they want to co-brand with paper. What does that look like? If paper is telling that story. Um, it could be, you know, having Laverne Cox on the cover, um, you know, starring in the Hulu uh, film Bad Hair. Um, it could be working with Lena Waithe and her upcoming releases of new shows on BET. Like, what does that partnership um, look like? And I think for me, you know, I am actually the only uh, full-time Black woman on staff um, there. So for me, it's equally just as important to make sure that representation is a huge thing. Um, So whether, you know, working on a partnership, working on some sort of deal, uh, making sure that the talent and the faces that we use um, aren't just of a particular, (laughs) of a particular hue or complexion, right? Like making sure that black and brown faces and voices uh, and stories are told. So a a little birdie told me that one of your favorite campaigns was a Nike campaign. 
uh, off of one. <laughs> How did you know that? <laughs> Listen, I, I guess yeah. we have a really great, great producer. That's really all it is. Um, but so talk to me about what that campaign was about and how it all came together and, and why it's your favorite, one of your favorites. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so actually all for one with Nike, um, definitely one of my favorite campaigns to have put together um, and have creative directed and produced. Um, it actually was nominated for Ad of the Year by Ad Color, which is like a huge honor. <laughs> a very like people huge who don't honor. know, like if, if you know the advertising business, you know, but most people don't. That's a big deal. That is a huge deal. Yes. It's, it's like the Oscars, if you will, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially when it comes to uh, multicultural um, advertising. And to even honestly, Delisha, be in the same category as like the 1619 Project, which is from New York Times, or being uh, part of um, being alongside um, The Look, you know, which was a Procter & Gamble commercial, which was very riveting. Um, to even Google's, you know, a Black History Month uh, in review, the most searched campaign, like to even have all for one, like a Nike campaign that like I scripted and produced and creative directed, like crazy, like just out of this world. Um, and really on a shoestring budget, you know what I'm saying? Like those campaigns are multi-million dollar campaigns, while the Nike budget uh, for me was just a few hundred thousand dollars. So um, how that came about was really uh, Nike approached us and I led the charge on that. You know, originally they wanted to focus on um, athletes and and um, sort of the sports realm as far as like people sort of doing things during the holiday season. And I was able to um, convince them that we really kind of needed to look at young champions, you know, young change makers in their local communities on the ground, um, doing good for their communities and good for their people. So uh, they were very um, open to that, you know, once I pitched that to them. And uh, the campaign features two uh, mission-driven organizations, the first being Black Girls Code, um, which is an organization founded by Kimberly Bryant. And their goal is to um, have, I believe it's uh, millions of girls by 2024, Black girls, um, no coding by 2024, which is huge, right? Because there's such a small percentage, I believe it's less than two or 3% um, who are in STEM, Black black women, um, Latinx and Native American uh, women who are in that demo. So Black Girls Code uh, works with girls 17 to 17 um, and they have different chapters all over the country. Um, so we worked with them to kind of share their story. You know what I'm saying? And we focused on uh, four to five girls um, who are very determined and talked about what it was, what, what it's like being um, sort of in an industry or have an interest where there aren't a lot of people who look like them. Uh, there are a lot of white men who are in, you know, Silicon Valley in the STEM fields. Um, and so what it's like for them to feel empowered and, you know, what they want to do when they grow up. Um, and so that premiered actually was very strategic when we premiered that because that actually premiered uh, during Computer Science Education Week, which is a national thing, apparently. Um, and that happens in December. And then the other organization that I featured in All for One is Kicks for the City, which is a nonprofit in Chicago. And what they do is they actually collect uh, new to uh, lightly worn shoes um, for people who are either homeless or who have faced different adversities because apparently the number one thing that um, the homeless community needs, especially during the winter and cold seasons, are shoes. Uh, So we followed them um, on their journey to collect over 100,000 shoes and what that means. So um, all for one, I established that as being sort of an ethos, right? An ethos of 
hustling, an ethos of manifestation, um, an ethos of sort of being young and and pushing different missions forward. And I think um, that was a very powerful campaign that definitely sort of broke the mold as far as, as you know, the holidays are super saturated. You know, it's all about gift with purchase, um, you know, very uh, red, green and, and Santa Claus and all these things. But I think uh, All for One definitely stood out because it was about giving back, right? And it was about like, not necessarily Nike and athletes, but like the real athletes who they may not wear capes, they wear Nike, right? Like that's what um, keeps them going forward. And so being able to do that, I mean, wow, like talk about knowing your greatness um, and, and, you know, not really having necessarily the multi-million dollar budget, but making it look like <laughs> a multi-million dollar production. I'm extremely, extremely proud of that. Um, and that actually just won a Davy Award um, for Best Motivational um, Video. So um, it's still making its, making its rounds. It's still having an impact. Um, so it's something that I'm so, so honored to have been a part of. Well, congratulations on, on the recent award. Um, but I want you to educate us a little bit, too, for those who are, haven't worked in the industry and don't know. That idea, right, is so transformative and so out of the box. I, I, you know, it's not something that you would think would be the first thing someone would pitch to Nike, right? That Nike, no pun intended, seems like slam dunk, throw a few athletes in, you're good. Yeah. Um, so in, in this situation, was it a scenario in which you were put on the team or you were selected to work on this and then you came up with the idea? Or did you pitch the idea and then you basically were handed the keys to the kingdom to say steer the ship? So yeah, that's a great question. So honestly, Delisha, like within this industry, it depends, right? So Nike came to us. They said, this is our the budget we have. We want to do something for the holidays. Very loose and did brief, you know what I'm saying? Like not necessarily like it must be this, it must be that. They wanted to work with athletes and that was it. So you have this and you have to somehow run with it. You'll have, you know, um, brands or personalities who will come to you with, you know, three sentences and say, here, this is what I need. And you have to take from that and, and make it something. You know what I'm saying? You'll have people who are very strict and are like, we want this, that, and the third. We don't want this. We don't want that. We just want whatever it is we're proposing. Okay, that's fine. But I feel like I flourish when it comes to the ones where it's just like, we don't know what we want to do. Take it and run with it. Go for it. Um, I think the best ideas come out of stuff like that um, because you're able to sort of push boundaries. You're able to spark conversation and discourse. Um, so they came to us with this very loose brief. They wanted to work with athletes. And, you know, I saw it and I said, why? <laughs> like, why? Like, you can honestly work with anyone to, like you said, have the slam dunk, have the, you know, golfer, swimmer, whoever. But like, let's turn this on its head. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's let's really not only do something different and, and left field, but let's also like allow this to be a platform, allow this to be an opportunity for the people who don't get the recognition. Like, yeah, we could have LeBron James be a part of this, for instance. That's cool. That's great. But like, there's a hundred other, you know what I'm saying, campaigns out there featuring him. Let's feature the next LeBron Jameses, right, who aren't within basketball, who are more within the STEM area or within, you know what I'm saying, um, other fields, other areas. Um, and I think that's really what made it successful. Um, not necessarily getting the brief and being like, okay, sure, let's do, let's just feature the athletes and let's 
do that. Again, sort of being unapologetic, being fearless and, and being creative. Like being creative is not an easy thing to do at all. I think people think it's like um, super, you know, super simple, doesn't take much, but it takes a lot. It takes a lot. And, you know, when you're in this industry, um, let's say the Nike campaign is one example, but there are times where you'll pitch something, you'll work, you know, day in and day out and the idea goes nowhere. So, you know, you put so much into things, you do get pushed back. Things do get rejected. Um, and I think because I've been in the industry for over 10 years, like I'm used to it now, I have a thick skin, um, you know, knowing that, okay, I'll pocket that idea and maybe it, it'll be suited for someone else. So um, I hope that answers the question. Yes, it, it absolutely, okay. it absolutely does. And I mean, it, I think this Nike story speaks to just Black women making the most out of the least. Uh, and, you know, literally blazing new trails and, and innovate, innovating, uh, in a way that we're often, even after all this time and all these examples, we're not expected to. And also, I think you brought up an important point about being a creative, uh, not being easy because anybody can have a spark of inspiration once or twice, but to Mm -hmm. continue to come up with new and creative ideas and things that are unique, right. That's not like, Oh, I know Courtney was behind that because it's kind of the same thing every time. You know, mm-hmm. so come up with things that are really uniquely different um, is a skill, right? And you got to be anointed for that, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But interestingly, you know, we've been talking about paper and the things that you're doing to really raise the visibility of particularly Black women. And, and we bring a certain cultural currency, right? In, in a lot of different spaces. Like, let's just call it what it is. But often, if we want to be real, in media, they borrow and they co-opt what we've done without giving us mm-hmm. the check and the space, right, to be the representation of what it is that we created. We see it all the time. Do you yep. think working in, in media, do you think that tide is changing? That we're not only setting the trends, we're bringing the, we are the cultural currency, but being presented as such in the mainstream? Yeah. Yeah, we definitely are the cultural currency. Like, one of my models is Black culture is pop culture. Uh, yeah, Black culture is pop culture. Mm-hmm. Like, at the end of the day, like, we set the trends, you know, like, Black women, uh, the Black LGBTQ community also, you know what I'm saying? Like, all the memes, all of the, you know, challenges that are out there, the busted challenge and this, that, and the third, like, it's because of us. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, Black Twitter is because of us. Like, there would be no internet if, if there were no Black people. Like, come on, that's just the reality of it. I mean, you see it time and time again you know, uh, Taylor Swift, you know what I'm saying? Miley Cyrus, they'll do an album that is influenced by a Black music, Black culture. They'll feature Black background dancers and they can, you know, wake up the next day and do a whole folk folk album. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, So they have the privilege, right? To kind of switch it on and switch it off. Um, Take it and run with it and not give us our credit. Um, But that's a whole nother story for a different day. Um, But... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yes and no, to be to be very honest with you. I mean, you're seeing it even within fashion. You know, you're seeing like these big uh, fashion de- uh, design houses, these fashion retailers, you know, ripping off of a small designer, small businesses like, you know, Victoria's Secret recently uh, ripped a bra design, a bralette design from a black, a black designer. Um, they think they're being sneaky, but people are, are calling them out. And I have to thank social media for that. You know what I'm saying? Like 10, 20 years ago, they could have gotten away with it, but people are, are pointing out and, and holding people accountable. Right. So there is a shift you are seeing, you know, at least 
um, holding people responsible. Now, giving credit is one thing, getting, giving them their flowers while they're here is another thing, giving, the, giving them their coin, their bag, their check is a whole other thing. But that's what I would hope we could get to because it's the only right thing to do. Like if you were to pause all Black women, all Black people, like the world would be so boring. Like who wants to, <laughs> who wants to experience that? Like, especially when it comes to media and entertainment and pop culture, like it would just be bland. Um, so I think it's only right that we do give people their flowers. We do give Black people, Black women um, their flowers. And I think that um, Black creatives, Black writers in particular are noticing that and they're speaking more about that. I feel like we are more open to having that discourse. I feel like, you know, if I'm sure many designs have been stolen before, you know, years ago, but maybe it was very hush hush. I'm sure there's there's black and brown people who who've been taken advantage of. And we just don't know about them. But thankfully, we live in a world now where we have the technology to to point people out, you know, call them out um, and hold them accountable. So I definitely think that's the first step. Um, and my hope is that, you know, we will get sort of our creative reparations because we <laughs> we built pop culture. We built entertainment at the end of the day. So. And the way the internet has evolved, it's been happening forever, right? And there are things mm-hmm. that, you know, even though brands that don't want to be associated with us or didn't want to back in the 80s and 90s, but were built off the backs of hip hop and R&B yeah. and, and the Black community. Um, but now just the speed at which things catch fire because of social media is so much greater. You're watching colonization happen at a greater speed as well, right? So like mm-hmm. at one point, when you know cash money was talking about bling bling every time I come around your city, right? And then bling was showing up everywhere. Like you had these really distinct instances. And now every week is something new, right? It's it's where the money yeah. resides right now. Right. And thankfully I think people are catching on in that the minute they start to see whatever they're doing catching fire within the, you know, the black community and beyond, they're trying to find ways to monetize and extend the runway yep. and, and that and really understanding what they need to do to protect their intellectual property, quite frankly. And I think that's helping too, with people becoming uh, more savvy and saying, mm-hmm. you know what, people are pay- taking notice. Let me lock this down in a way where it's going to benefit me. Uh, and the others yes. do it all the time. So that's that's one thing, you know, for sure that that I'm, I'm proud of. I don't know how we ring fence, ring fence it in a way where it's getting out there, but we get our just due. Because sometimes I want to be like, do y'all have to take everything? Like, can it just be for us? Um, so it's, it's like we're running on two tracks, wanting this exclusivity um, and trying to find ways to to monetize, but also wanting to have the reach in, in the sense that we continue to have that cultural currency and say, look at the track mm-hmm. record. Historically, we continue to set the trends. Um, but shifting gears a little bit, since you work for a magazine and you are also uh, an AKA, I have to ask about a certain magazine cover that just came out uh, recently with, again, going back to talking about Madam Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, uh, has caused a lot of stir. Mm-hmm. Both, you know, what I found interesting is the cover that came out as the quote official cover and everybody was like, what in the world is this, right? And then the other cover came out. I was still underwhelmed with the other. I'm like, this is the best you guys can come up with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you work in the business, right? And mm-hmm. the messaging that came out from Vogue was we felt this cover really showed how relaxed she is, showed her in her element and really who she uh, 
presents herself to be to the public, who she, quote, genuinely is or whatever you want to call it. And I was like, I'm not buying this for five minutes, right? Mm-hmm. So for what was your reaction as a creative strategist and someone who works in the business to that first cover and to the explanation? Oh, my reaction was hell no. Um, point blank period. What is this? Um, you know, taking myself outside of her being my sorority sister and me having that affiliation, right? Like taking that away and just being an expert in the field and sort of looking at what occurred. Um, it just seems really sloppy to me. I honestly feel like um, it's clear that her team um, had a certain number of selects that they wanted to be the cover. And it sounds like, um, and Tyler Mitchell, who was a photographer, amazing, talented, young uh, Black male photographer. He's the one who photographed Beyonce um, on that beautiful cover of Vogue um, a couple years ago, um, who sort of got his start from that. Um, so I don't even think the responsibility came on him. The responsibility came down to Vogue and honestly to Anna Wintour, who's the uh, editor-in-chief there. Um, and I feel like they made an executive decision to have the pink and green uh, background with uh, Madam Vice President-elect wearing the Converse sneakers. Um, I think they made an executive decision to run that and have that be the print edition. And to be very frank, I don't even think they had had a digital cover option until Miss um, Kamala Harris' team came back and was like, what is this? And then they turn around and picked the blue powder suit option and said, oh, this is the digital cover version. Um, I thought that was really strange um, when, in fact, what they could have done if they were really savvy was actually uh, had that be a two cover run, right, of actual print uh, copies. So um, you could pick up the blue powder suit, suit version if you wanted, or you could pick, pick up the, the more lax version that, you know, with the, the black Converse sneakers. Um, at the end of the day, I will say most times it is the publication's decision on what um, cover or imagery will run. But at the same time, my experiences have always been collaborative with the subject in which we are photographing and featuring. So um, usually the process is we will send the selects to whoever the cover star is um, to their team um, and they will comment and give their feedback. Um, we may also um, share our feedback and share our uh, rationale for why we think certain images should be on the cover. Um, but in my experiences, we also respect the feedback of the cover star because at the end of the day, like it's their likeness, it's their image who's going to be, you know, uh, on social media, on television, on the newsstands. Um, so I think honestly, uh, something fell through the cracks. Um, on Vogue's end, either um, someone didn't get the message or someone decided to ignore the message. And to be honest with you, my favorite, actually, if I had to choose out of the two, um, and I'm actually interested in seeing what the um, other images were um, to kind of compare, but based on those two options, I personally preferred the blue powder suit just because of the type of magazine uh, we're talking about. We're talking about Vogue, right? We're talking about um, high fashion editorial sort of upper echelon and I felt like um that photo um not only represented the magazine but also it sort of represented I think what Miss Kamala Harris is trying to convey through an image through being you know the vice president-elect so I if I was a decision maker on that I would have totally respected that 
and possibly had the print cover, the one with the sneakers, as an inset image rather than on the actual cover. Um, I also was not fond of the press release that they put out in regards to the backlash. Um, There was a quote in there from Anna Wintour in which she said something to the effect of um, Kamala looked more approachable in this image. And the first thing I thought was, what do you mean by approachable? If she's in a suit and her arms are crossed and she looks, you know, regal and she looks powerful, that's not approachable. Are you kind of hinting at the angry Black woman stereotype here? Like, I'm not sure. Um, So I have to say that I felt like their crisis communication strategy was a mess on that. Um, And really, honestly, what they should have done was held themselves accountable and said, hey, this is what we did. We did not listen to Black women (laughs) in this case, and we need to do a better job. And we need to do a make good. And I felt like the digital cover was a last minute decision that just landed flat. Um, and people saw that. So um, again, that goes to show you that people are more savvy um, and aren't taking the BS and are really reading between the lines more than ever. Um, and, you know, I kind of wish it was a different magazine now that she was on, to be to be honest with you, just because like this is her first cover as, you know, Madam Vice President-elect and who wants that sort of backlash? Like you want to frame that, you know what I'm saying? Like you want to have that in time. I'm sure she wants to share that with her, you know, nieces and her family members and now it's kind of like this is what's going to be associated with that the backlash and that's not fair to her you know that's not fair to her legacy it's not fair to what she represents and the history that um she has made but you know there'll be many more covers to come and i feel like other magazines and um other publishers um will do justice and they'll learn from this and you know um hopefully the next shoots that she does um are better and and more um her style and her wishes yeah i mean that that background and the one that was chosen it was very much giving me church anniversary banquet photography booth oh yes (laughs) (laughs) it's just not something you expect from a a magazine of that caliber um but it Mm -hmm. also makes me think about and I, i would love your opinion on this how often we see uh Black people appear on television or like it, I always talk about the first season of reality shows when like the lighting is trash, the makeup is not great, yeah. you know, all these things. It's not really geared towards us. Right. And one of the chief complaints I have is when we're not lit properly and it's clear that they haven't had the right creative direction and stylists and makeup artists on site, on set to cater to us. In recent, yeah. In recent Let's just say in the last year, right? Do you feel like now I know if you're involved, that conversation is happening, but do you feel like there is a greater uh, sensitivity to things that we need and certain elements that we need to present ourselves in the best light, both both literally and figuratively? Are those conversations happening and is consideration given to melanated skin and what we need mm-hmm. to look a certain way? I love this topic out of this question. Um, Those conversations are being had if Black and brown people are at the table. Those conversations are being had and you can tell those conversations are being had. Um, The creative director at Self Magazine, if you look at Self Magazine, let's say the past year, they've had Taraji on the cover, they've had Mary J. Blige, they've had Angelica Ross on the cover. And Self Magazine 
has been known to be sort of middle America, white woman, white desperate housewife um, kind of vibes. And the creative director, Amber, there has totally spun it. It's a total 180. And what she's done has been incredible. So kudos to her. Um, But those conversations are being had if Black people are at the table. And if they, um, they may not be, let's say, the executive decision makers, but they're able to add their two cents on things. Um, For me, you know, having to have uh, done a cover series with Lena Waithe, you know, for me, it was very important to have Black-owned fashions, have them wear Black-owned fashions, to have the the glam team be Black, to have the photographer be Black, to have... um, the set designers, the assistants, et cetera, be black um, just because it's only right. And then also those creatives don't necessarily get the opportunity, right, to photograph celebrities at a certain caliber. So um, like you said, like we know how to light people. We know what colors look great on our complexions. You know, we know um, foundation, makeup, like all those things are super important. You know, I remember a story about Chad with Pop Bozeman, you know, God rest his soul where he was on set um, and he was supposed to be, I think, recording some sort of video campaign and a white makeup artist came up to start putting some powder on his face. And he said, get that shit away from me. Where is the black makeup artist? <laughs> and they actually had to scramble and, and bring someone in. Um, and, and that's coming from a male celebrity. You know what I'm saying? Like not even a female or woman uh, celebrity. So um, those conversations are only being had if there are black people at the table. Um, and, you know, not to bring up Vogue again, but this isn't their first, you know, mix up or screw up, whatever you want to call it. Like they've had Simone Biles on the cover um, and she was photographed by um, Annie uh, Leibowitz, who is, you know, an icon, if you will, um, in the in the fashion world. But she time and time again, people have complained about how she lights black skin. Like it, it's very dark. It's very shadowy. Um, it doesn't put us in the best light. Um, and so maybe we're not her thing. <laughs> like, right. maybe, um, you know, again, if it, if it had been like a black photographer, you know, I'm sure those images would have looked starkly different than, you know, um, what, what came out with that. But yeah, I, I feel like those conversations, people are a bit more open to discussing um, when it comes to black hairstylists being on the set, you know, black makeup artists. Um, I feel like it's still a lot of work to do. Um, I feel like a lot of people need to really, really educate themselves and understanding why this is important. Um, Because these magazines, you know, they last forever and ever in time. And so, especially with the internet. So it's not like you can, you know, take these covers away, you know, make them disappear and replace them. You you just can't. So it's really important to be um, really particular, to be on your P's and Q's and really to respect the subjects. Uh, the person or people that you're photographing and that you're featuring, um, you also need to realize that Black people, you know, uh, there's a history in America in which um, our looks, our aesthetics um, have been <clears throat> tormented and talked about and, and, and teased. Again, Vogue with the LeBron James and uh, Giselle Bunchen cover uh, several years ago, um, in which people attended it with the King Kong uh, image saving the damsel in distress. Um, so really thinking, <laughs> thinking before they, you know, push the send button, I think is really important. And being, don't be afraid to ask. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't be afraid to Google. Like, Google's your best friend. So please do your research. And two, don't be afraid to ask your black, black and brown colleagues. Like, hey, what do you think of this? Like, what is your input? Like, does this look like, you know, 
especially uh, with, with the George Floyd murder and things like that, like there was some sensitivity around images. Like, does this look like this person's being arrested? Like maybe this pose isn't, you know, the best to put out there right now. Or, you know, I think people are a little bit open to having those conversations, but it depends who's at the table. So that's why it's so important for more black and brown people in this space to have a seat at the table. And if you're not going to give us a seat at the table, then we have to build our own damn table. Absolutely. And I think part of respecting your subject is to stop viewing Black talent as difficult when they make certain Mm -hmm. requests, right? To make sure that they're presented and their images is reflected in the way that they desire. And there's all these stories on the internet. The minute somebody, an actor or an artist puts their hands up and says, no, you don't have the right hair person here, the right makeup person. All of a sudden, like we're hard to work with just by speaking up Mm -hmm. for ourselves and um, saying, hey, no, this is what I need to feel comfortable. So I do do agree that there's some strides that are being made and folks are are feeling more comfortable in speaking out when they're the only at the table. But I'm also excited to see what we build ourselves as well. Um, And it's great to be accepted, but it's also great to innovate in something that we own, that that we build also. Yeah, it's great to accept ourselves. Yes, exactly. So back to your story and the work that you've done to really innovate and establish yourself as a subject matter expert and getting a seat at the table. Uh, We've talked about your journey and some of the decisions that you had to make and step out on faith, but describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. (sighs) There's so many to choose from, Um, but one that's top of mind is I wasn't even of age. I wasn't even an adult, but um, I think I became extraordinary the day I was born. Um, I was born three months premature. I weighed a pound, four ounces. And um, the doctors were like, she's not going to be able to walk, talk. You know, she's going to be a vegetable. Frankly, that's what they told my mom. And they they really asked her, like, why are you having this child? (laughs) There's, there's, she's going to be practically lifeless. So what's the point? Um, and you know, my mother clearly believed, um, in me and, um, you know, I stayed in the hospital in the, uh, uh, ICU, um, for three plus months. Um, and, you know, I think I was extraordinary on an ordinary day, um, coming into this world, um, and sort of being a survivor and and being a victor, you know, um, and being unstoppable. So, you know, clearly I didn't know that at the time, I'm sure, um, but the divine knew that. And so um, I think that's where a lot of my uh, resilience comes from. Um, You know, it's in my DNA, I guess. And so that's definitely a time I think I was extraordinary on an ordinary day. You were born a fighter, right? So none of this should come as a surprise, what you've done (laughs) to date. (laughs) So what what are you most excited for with regard to do it for the brand? I'm excited for the opportunity to tell more of our stories. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean the same old stories from the past, if you know what I mean. Um, although they're really important, um, you know, the slave, the slave tales, the civil rights tales, um, but really kind of looking at Black people, um, looking at Black futures, Black in tech, um, you know, you're kind of seeing... Uh, a space now for those stories to kind of be told. Um, so do it for the brand. My goal ultimately is to share share our stories. Like there's so much to be told. There's so much beauty, so much potential, so much possibility um, in Black people, in Black culture. Um, and so my goal is to be, you know, a leader in that space 
to tell our stories, you know, whether it's developing do it for the brand into a production company that, you know, strictly does that um, is something that I hope for. And, you know, I pray for and I dream about. So, yeah, that's definitely something one of the many things I want for do it for the brand. Well, listen, as a black woman, as a black creative on the side, in addition to I'm working with the right and left side of the brain, brain, uh, brain <laughs> I am incredibly excited to see the mark that you continue to leave lead, leave on your industry, uh, your imprint on media and advertising, and also the work you do as a conduit to really tell our stories and put us front and center. I can't wait to see what the next chapter looks like for you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I can't wait for you. Like, you know, what you're doing is amazing. Like balancing, you know, being a lawyer and having this amazing platform uh, for, you know, Black entrepreneurs and Black creatives is just amazing. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing for the culture. Thank you. We appreciate you coming on. Um, I'm very excited for this to drop. You know, everyone who listens to the show regularly knows that like the men, the male guests actually outnumber the women on our show. We don't know why, but that's just how it happens. So I'm always <laughs> super excited when, when one of my sisters comes on. Um, so can't wait for this to drop. But tell the people where they can find you online. Yes. So you all can find me online at Do It For The Brand. Um, I love Instagram. So slide in my DMs if you have any questions because um, Instagram is my favorite platform. But yeah, you can keep up with me there. Awesome. So to our listeners, you know where to find Courtney. Do it for the brand. Also looking for her on IG. Go follow. If you enjoy this interview, tell somebody about it. We are nothing without you. Like, share, subscribe, follow what she's doing. Listen, go ahead and check out Paper Magazine too, right? We, we, all of us, we're yes. online and we're clicking, but that may not be, <laughs> Paper, Paper Magazine may not be the first thing that comes to mind with regard to Black representation, but Courtney is doing amazing work behind the scenes to tell our stories. Make sure you go support her and check that out as well. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.